episode of the Appalachian Agorist. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined today by my co-host and dear friend, Rob. How's it going, guys? And a special guest, Dr. C. Good morning. So, I just got back from the IKC Virginia 21 event. I'm going to be talking about that, but not today. Um, probably going to put that out in a little bonus episode sort of thing. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at the Appalach- Appalachian Agorist or on Twitter at App Agorist Pod, App with two Ps, Agorist, P-O-D. So a few episodes ago, you may remember we had on Farmer Bob, who many of you reached out and told me how much you enjoyed that episode um, just because of the experience he brought and the knowledge he has. So I reached out to another person I know that actually does the preservation of all the food that comes out of their garden. And uh, yeah, she's here to talk to us about how to preserve all the food that we grow and how to minimize waste. And when I first started talking to her about this, it blew me away how many different method she uses and so without further ado i'm just going to let you introduce yourself dr c and you can tell us how you got into it why you got into it and all that sort of stuff well sure uh first a caveat i am not a nutritional doctor or a medical person i am a academic doctor so that said um i figured if i could pass multivariate statistics, I could learn to do all of these things. And you don't have to pass multivariate statistics to do it. But um, so growing up, uh, we, when we moved back to Virginia, growing up, we had a rather large garden that was new to me. I was about eight and it was an acre, believe it or not. Um, and we did preserve a lot of food. We, we would get 100 chickens every year in the wintertime and 25 turkeys. We've had beef cow, beef in the past. And, but my parents didn't can food. Everything was frozen. So we had huge, you know, chest freezers that we kept it in. But, um, but my grandparents did. I remember my, my paternal grandmother <clears throat> She canned everything. Um, They had a big garden every year. And that's not really surprising given that they came through the Depression where, you know, food was scarce. And you either grow, grew it yourself or, you know, you maybe went without. So um, I have very fond memories of her. She had this strawberry rhubarb jelly that she made. And then something I don't see many people do and I'd love to get Bob to grow these for me, is ground cherry jam. It was amazing. Um, But um, I do remember, I have memories of cabbage, chopped cabbage piled two feet high on the island in the kitchen for, you know, to blanch it and get it in the freezer. So um, actually, we ate so well, I didn't even realize we were poor until I was in high school. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, growing food, um, you know, this year, my wife and I saved a ton of money just growing our own food. And, you know, it's been, 
it's been really eye-opening um, how how much that one step can put you towards self-reliancy. So it sounds like you've had your hand in all different kinds of pots um, as far as, you know, preserving your food. So what did you actually start with? Like, have you been doing it your entire life or did it fall off and then you picked it back up and well, um, it kind of came out of COVID-19 hit in 2020. Um, we've always had a garden, but all of our overabundance, we loved to share with our friends and our coworkers. And when COVID hit, all of a sudden I was faced with um, basically about a pound and a half of asparagus every two days and not enough people to give it away to. And also, at the same time, because of COVID, I wasn't going into the city where I, I would get a lot of ethnic food because my husband is not that adventurous when it comes to eating different things, but a desperate, desperate need for kimchi. And um, <laughs> so, I know it sounds funny, but seriously... I was craving kimchi and I had tons of asparagus and then the cucumbers started coming in. So that was probably April, May timeframe of 2020. So I thought, well, let me, let me just buy a canner. Well, I attempted to buy one and they were back ordered six months and I'm like, Oh, okay. Now what am I going to do? So Actually, the first book I bought was called Preserving Food Without Freezing or Canning. And it's a collection of um, fruit and vegetable preservation techniques and recipes from French organic gardeners. It's been translated into English, but um, the book was really cool because it deliberately ignored freezing and canning. It focused on natural preservation techniques using eight specific methods. Um, and I think we're going to talk about some of them in this podcast, but they are root cellars, sun drying, lactic uh, fermentation, oil vinegar, salt, sugar, and alcohol. And um, these methods were used not so much to preserve it, but to extend the bounty of, of your fresh produce. Um, it's different than canning, um, but one of the, one of the, points the book made that really resonated with me as I embarked on this journey was that in times past, an individual person would learn to can or preserve food or ferment from their mother or their grandmother or maybe an aunt before they actually tried it on their own. So there was this kind of apprentice phase that you went through as you worked alongside of them and you were able to garner the experience and the confidence to do it yourself. Unfortunately, my grandmother has passed. Um, my mother just started canning in the last year, so she she's um, relatively new to it. But um, and she's not close enough where that would be something we could really feasibly do together. But. Um, so like probably many of your listeners, I found myself trying to learn these techniques from books without the added benefit of a mentor. Now, 
Having said that, I did find some YouTube channels that um, are really helping to fill that gap, um, such as Whippoorwill Holler and Homestead Heart and Simple Alaska Living. Um, they give their recipes, techniques. Um, it's really been helpful for me. So, um, so having said that, I couldn't get a canner. Um, all this produce was coming in. Um, I was like, okay, well, fermenting doesn't sound that, that hard. I, I knew, I knew kimchi was fermented, but I thought it would, you know, like you had to bury some crock in the ground or something. And I wasn't sure I could do it. So after reading through the book, I was like, I can totally do this. So, um, so basically the first thing I fermented was kimchi <laughs> and, uh, it came out fantastic and um, then I did sauerkraut, and then the more I read, I realized that I could, even though I couldn't get a pressure canner, I could probably water bath can a lot of my asparagus and cucumbers if I pickled them. So um, that's pretty much, well, since I can, couldn't get a uh, pressure canner. Actually, what I used was my pasta pot. You know what I'm talking about? It's like a big pot, and then it has an insert that's got like holes in it, like a colander, so that right. when you cook your pasta, you can just pull. It. Yeah. So, because um, you don't, a canner has like a a tray in the bottom, so that the jars aren't sitting right on the the pot. And I I knew I couldn't do that, so I thought, well, let me just try my pasta pot. And it actually worked. Um, I canned a lot of um, pickles last year, just straight pickles and asparagus. And then I did uh, my first try at strawberry jam. When I say that first try, it didn't come out very good. And that's my fault, but we'll get into that more later. But um, so that's pretty much how I did it in 2020. I got my All-American pressure canner in February of this year. I've been using it quite a lot, quite a lot. I can asparagus, pickles, cauliflower, salsa, jams, syrup, beef stew, caramelized balsamic on onions. That Those were amazing. And even potatoes so far this year. This all is just making me, I haven't eaten breakfast. It is Sunday morning. <laughs> and a staple of Sunday mornings in the South is this massive breakfast. And hearing you talk about all this food is just making my stomach growl. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. No, that's all. I didn't know you could. Uh, that's a good little tidbit on the pasta pot, because I think most people have a pasta pot with that uh, colander insert. And uh, obviously, you know, you don't want the cans directly on that heat source. I'm sure it's uh, it could I'm not a food preservation expert. I am very much a novice, but I'm assuming with the basics of glass, I know uh, when Rob and I were in the fire department, we've seen glass heat up, and then as soon as it's cooled, it shatters. So I assume that's probably why they're not sitting on the bottom. Uh, yeah, that's just too much direct heat um, at, at that one location, and then as it cools down, yeah, it, it can it can shatter. Um, the only downside about using the uh, pasta pot was I did have to downsize the um, 
glass vessels I, I was using couldn't obviously use quartz, had to really use half pints or pints. Um, and uh, depending on how big your pasta pot is, you know, ideally you want one to two inches of water above the top of the lid. Um, so, you know, those are some downsides, but as long as you recognize that ahead of time and plan for it, it's, it's a, it's a good stopgap actually. Yeah. I know, I know a lot of people are into canning, but I've never met anyone else personally that's really big into fermentation. And I'd love to hear you talk about how you actually went about making your own kimchi and fermented, um, products, I guess, like sauerkraut, you sure. know, I hate sauerkraut, but kimchi maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I made, um, bok choy kimchi and daikon radish kimchi. And so lactic acid fermentation or lacto fermentation really is pretty easy. You're using salt or saltwater brine to preserve the vegetables. The salt really helps the probiotic bacteria to grow, and which is really great for your digestive tract. And it does this by breaking down the sugars in the vegetables and creating lactic acid. And this also creates an environment in which you know the bad bacteria can't survive. Now, you have to be careful. Um, I used um, I used mason jars uh, to do mine but you wanna keep your food underneath the brine. If it goes above the brine, obviously it's gonna be exposed to the air and mold can grow and that sort of thing. But uh, you can ferment uh, cabbage, that's how you get your sauerkraut, um, radishes, zucchini, beets, carrots, onions, and even fruit. Um, I focused mainly on the kimchi and, um, and and it's and I did it. It's recommended for the kimchi to ferment it from one to five days at temperatures at about sixty to seventy-five degrees. Um, just with trial and error, I I chose to I chose to only ferment it on the counter for a day, and then I let it do the fermentation process in my refrigerator. It will still continue to ferment. It just won't ferment as quickly. And I, it, you know, some people like really sour kim kimchi. I like it when it's fresh. And as it gets older, it, it the flavor changes a little bit. Um, and then you can make stews uh, like kimchi jjigae and stuff like that, um, which is uses the sour kimchi. But um, that's how I did it. So what's the basic process? Harvest, like if we were going to take bok choy kimchi, um, you harvest your bok choy, you create a brine, you season it as you want, and then what do you do from there? Do you just put it in the well, jar actually, and close it? It's actually pretty interesting. Um, this is true with cabbage, with the daikon radishes and the bok choy. You, you chop it up the, into the sizes. If you're using the daikon, you know, you want little small cubes about, I'd say about a half an inch. Um, and then if you're doing, if you're doing uh, sauerkraut, you would shred your cabbage, um, you know, slice it thinly. Bok choy, I tended to use it in like one and a half inch chunks, you know, just chop it up and get it down into little pieces. You put it in a non-reactive container, like a stainless steel or a glass bowl, 
And um, depending on how much, um, sure. Yeah, a bucket would work. Okay. Um, you need to be able to move it though. You don't want it packed in there because the the uh, the process is then you add the appropriate amount of kosher salt to it and mix it up, and that salt draws liquid out of the vegetables, and so it creates its own brine. And it for for kimchi, you for kimchi and sauerkraut, I think it's about two hours of of letting it sit and and letting that salt draw the fluid, you know, the the moisture out of the, the cabbage or the radish or whatever. And you just you tur- stir it around about every 20 minutes during that two-hour time frame. So that's kind of how you get started. Um, with, with sauerkraut, I'm trying to remember, do, did we rinse it? Did I rinse it? I might have rinsed it a little. I don't. I don't think I did that with sauerkraut. I'm trying to remember. Um, pretty much at that point, once it's once it's pulled out the moisture, then you can put it into whatever vessel you a non-reactive fermenting vessel. I want to be clear on that. You, you can't use aluminum. You know, it's recommended um, you, to use a crock with some kind of airlock system or a water seal system. Um, I used a wide mouth mason jar with um, pickle pipe airlocks and these pickle pebbles plus fermenting weights. They're like little glass weights that go inside of the wide mouth jars and they just hold all of your uh, ferment product beneath the brine. So that they're helpful and they fit perfectly in the wide mouth jars. And that all, where'd you, where did you get all that stuff? Uh, Amazon or online? Amazon. Yeah, I got it on, on Amazon. Oh, I mean, I had the jars. Um, that's the one thing I, I was able to get jars in 2020, just not a, not a canning pressure canner. <laughs> uh, so I had the jars. Um, the pickle pipes are like little silicone discs with a kind of, it looks like the, old bottles that they had in the seventies, like a little nipple on it. That's got a hole in it. I and think I've, what, I think I've seen those. Um, are those kind of like a, a whitewater kayaking skirt where like you sit in the kayak and then the skirt like in encompasses the hole on top. And then like, there's a little bulge at the top that is like a, acts as a one way valve. Yeah, yeah, it's the lids that you typically would use in canning that come with your jars when you initially buy them, this actually replaces that. So you take the lid out and you put the silicone um, pickle pipe in there. It's got that little nipple on the top. And what it allows um, the ferment to do is it, it allows the, the carbon dioxide to vent off without getting oxygen in. Right. So, I mean, you can you can actually ferment with a lid or something like that, but you have to be diligent to make sure that you're you're burping it. You go in, you unscrew it, you let that the gases air off, and you can put the lid back on. But like I said, you have to remember it will explode. <laughs> this is the if same process as making moonshine. Oh yeah. 
I'm haven't tried sure. that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm what you're describing uh, is the same basic process for making moonshine. Um, it's a one-way valve, and as it ferment, as it ferments, it allows stuff in the container to escape, but not draw air back inside. Right. So it's a, I guess it would because it's fermented. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's kind of obvious now that I think about it, but yeah, I, I totally get the, the concept now that helped a lot. How often do you have to let the, the air out before it like, explodes? at least I, well, I've never let it go that long, Rob, to be quite honest, but um, I would, uh, every day, I would check it every day. Um, also, I, I guess the other thing, I, I did kind of mention the temperature, but temperature is really key here. If it's too warm in your house, and this is the problem I ran into when I was, we were still running the fire, and um, it was just getting too hot in the house for my ferment, and or it could be too cold, um, but yeah, you want 60 to 75 degrees, pretty constant temperature. And most ferments, they want you to keep it out of the sunlight or in a, a cool, dry place, a uh, cabinet or something, or, or wrap a towel around it if you're using a glass jar. Um, I, used, I used Crocs for my sauerkraut the first time I tried it. I got two sizes. Um, and um, if I could do it over again, I probably would have stuck with the mason jar just because I put a lot of work into prepping that and getting it in there and it got too hot and my sauerkraut got ruined. Uh, now, also, so you, also, I had a, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So you could just uh, use, a, if you have a root cellar, that would pretty much be perfect. Oh, absolutely perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that's ideal. That would almost be like a double win because you have your root cellar that you can use for fermentation, but you also have a root cellar to keep your root vegetables for longer. Exactly. Um, have you, do you have a root cellar or have you ever thought about installing one or? Um, we do not have a root cellar here. Um, we've, uh, we've discussed it. We're actually trying something new. I mean, we've we've tried to preserve our potatoes and carrots um, in the garage. And what we did was we put them in this, like, uh, plastic stackable tray container and put uh, straw in there. And I think, yeah, I think you only use straw. You could use sawdust or something like that. You want them, you want them to be in a cool place as free from moisture as possible um that kind of worked they the potatoes were kind of soft by the end of the season by the end of the winter season but still usable um it just it's the garage is insulated so it was significantly warmer in there than i think it should have been if it or it could have could have been had it been a root cellar um but going back, the book that I talked about earlier actually had some things in it that I had never heard of. Um, like they, they described um, how you can preserve uh, some of your vegetables in the ground, in your garden all winter, just by, you know, um, 
protecting them from frost and excess moisture. Um, some examples they gave were like Brussels sprouts and curly kale, cabbage, carrots, leeks, etc. Another thing that they had was called trenching or healing in. And um, this was a similar method. Um, they, they recommended this for cabbage and lettuce where basically the vegetables are stay planted and they're kind of planted at it instead of up and down, they're kind of planted as a, in, on the side into a mound. And then you like cover them up with um, dirt and, and other material like straw. And they say that they'll keep longer. I've never tried it, but it seemed pretty ingenious to me. The other thing I read about in that book was something that they call a silo in France. I forget there was another name that the, the British call it, but, but basically they dig a hole that's about 16 to 32 inches wide and 20, 20 inches deep, and they covered the bottom and the walls with bricks on edge, and then they would alternate layers of the vegetables with leaves, like from the yard. And then you finish with the top layer of leaves and then you put like a, a wooden cover on it with, you know, that fits well over that, you know, I guess you'd have to make it to fit the opening, but sits on the bricks and you put a big weight or a rock on it. And, um, it, and there you, it, it's kind of like a root cellar, but they call it a silo. Yeah, that is it. I mean, to me, that's a root cellar. You can, there's people that uh, I've seen do the same basic concept, but they use pallets. So you get mm -hmm. six pallets, you dig a hole as deep as the pallet and as wide as the pallet. So you set the pallet flat, and then you stand the four of them up as walls and use the sixth one as a top and mm -hmm. just layer it with straw. Um, you can also use freezers, like old broken chest freezers, um, I've seen people dig them into the ground and put a PVC pipe uh, attached, drill a hole onto the sides, and then have that come up to the surface, um, kind of like a chimney would out of a house. And, you know, that's a lot of digging. But the benefit is that it's pretty sealed. It's, it's very uh, stable as far as temperature goes. And you can still use that lid of the freezer as an access point. So like I've seen all sorts of really cool uh, in-ground root cellars um, take off instead of the old traditional, like, well, you got to dig essentially a mine shaft into the side of a hill. Um, so what's, what's the purpose of the PVC uh, chimney? What... Yeah, that was going to be my question as well. Uh, yeah. I have no idea. That's just how they did it. Um, I'd have to look more into it. I would assume that because the freezer is airtight, that it's for airflow and hmm, moisture okay. release, I would assume. Because if you have too much moisture, I know that they can rot. Yeah, that makes sense. I have heard of people burying freezers before. Yeah, yeah. because you need... You need you want that cool, dark space, but too much moisture trapped, I assume, would be a collection point for mold. So mm -hmm. um, that would be my guess. So I think the biggest benefit of that is having the use of the top 
as like an entry point and instead of having to like cover it up and and uh and make it hard to access but i guess it does make sense that you don't want too much moisture build up yeah and then you have that you know two inch wall or whatever it is of insulated impermeable material so you don't have to worry as much about the ecosystem of the earth making its way into your your produce that was my only other thing too was like i i mean even though the it's not as bad as like you know summertime but this i mean there's still gonna be bugs and everything else that is down there getting into your your fruits and veggies but and, and yeah and, and you, varmints yeah (laughs) yeah and if you don't have a chest freezer you could use uh five gallon buckets as well and you know that is a lot less digging it's a lot less storage space so if you want the same amount of storage obviously you're gonna have to dig more holes but it's uh it's like eating an elephant like if i told you to bury a seven cubic foot freezer versus hey bury this five gallon bucket uh, it's, you know, a pair of post hole diggers and a digging bar, you can bury that bucket in probably 20 minutes. Uh, that freezer, you're going to be there for hours. Well, one of the ideas I had this year that I, I proposed to Bob, and he's actually, I don't know if he's actually going to do it or not, but he's partially using the idea, is um, we, we would get, before we had bought our half, half of beef, um, we would get our meat from Omaha Steaks. And they come in these really pretty hefty styrofoam like containers. They're like about this, they can be about the size of an ice cooler. And they're really thick, they're pretty durable, and they hold the temperature in probably better than the, than the um, one you can buy down at Walmart, you know, like the regular one, regular cooler. Um, but he has layered our larger baking potatoes in there with straw. And right now it's in the house. Um, but my idea was we could probably put that in the garage or you could put it in the ground. Yeah. And, it's, and do the since same it's thing. not that big. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. And I mean, it kind of sounds like you're on the permaculture train, like yeah, ways. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I was get, catching those vibes. I just wanted to make sure like I'm very much on that train too. Uh, waste as little as possible, repurpose everything. You know, it doesn't, I think people have this misconception with homesteading and this isn't too terribly off topic, but they have this misconception that everything has to be that perfect, pretty farmhouse, looking, uh, aesthetically pleasing design. And I find that most of the time, the, the best way to approach this stuff is to kind of throw that out the window and focus on function, right? So yeah, it may not be pretty to to have five gallon buckets, uh, you know, sticking out of your yard, but it's functional and that's normal. Every homestead I've ever visited, none of them have looked perfect. Not mine, not the one I saw last weekend. Polyface Farms, if I took the Polyface sign down, you would think it was a rundown farm that just has amazing, <laughs> you know, products. It's like they have old scrap wood they're reusing for everything. So, although some of this stuff is kind of out there, don't just throw it away because it's not aesthetically pleasing or it's not pretty. 
Yeah, I mean, throwing those styrofoam containers into the landfill is not a great idea, but as long as they as long as they hold up, and I don't know how long it would last, how many seasons it would last, probably at least one or two, I think. Um, I mean, you could probably even, if you're worried about the breakdown, maybe coat the outside to make it last longer, but um, yeah, it, it's... Um, it was just an idea that I had, and we had them sitting in the garage doing nothing. So, yeah, and why let them go to waste? So, no, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, so, we've talked about a bunch already, um, but what are you besides fermentation? What are you doing on a regular basis? Like, is canning still the backbone? Um, are you into the freezers? Uh, like, what is your go-to? Um, as far as how you preserve, because I know uh, from talking with Bob, he grows a ton. So you you have to can, right? Yeah, but, well, pretty much, or give it away. Um, honestly, it depends on what I'm working with. Some things we don't even try to preserve just because, um, for example, snow peas. We love the snow peas in the early spring and in the fall. We actually had them for dinner last night. They're awesome just with some Caesar dressing on them. Um, they're great in salads, whatever. But if you blanch them and freeze them, the texture's not the same. They, it, they're just best fresh in our opinion. So we don't even try to can or preserve them. We eat them while we have them, keep them in the fridge as long as we possibly can. Um, but we don't try to, to freeze them or, you know, can them at all. Um, some things, uh, we do a lot of, a fair amount of dehydration. Um, we have, a, you know, quite a few uh, areas within our yard for herbs. We have um, a lot of chives. We have Greek oregano, thyme, marjoram. Um, we grow basil every year. Um, and, and although I do like dried herbs, there's just something about fresh herbs and I really miss them in the winter time they the fresh basil and fresh thyme and rosemary um, so we do dry it but what I've started doing also is making pestos and freezing it so that I can still have that fresh fresh herb taste in the winter time um, most of the other vegetables either either I'm going to can them or make some kind of uh, quick and easy meal like a beef stew, or we're going to try to preserve them um, in, uh, you know, like we were just talking about in in some kind of root cellar or apparatus like that. Um, and then I do freeze my spinach. I'm pretty much the only one who eats cooked. Bob doesn't eat cooked vegetables of many kinds at all. He likes all this stuff fresh. So when we get our cauliflower and our broccoli, he wants to eat it fresh. When he's tired of eating it and we get more than he can eat, I start canning it. Um, the other thing that I started doing this year, I tried it last year with eggplant and I just didn't like the texture of it. But um, I'm doing it with tomatoes, cherry tomatoes this year, and that is preserving it in olive oil in my refrigerator. And it'll last about three to four months. Um, well, they said 
to let it sit in there for three, about three months before you eat it. So um, it, I think it's going to be really good. It has fresh, fresh basil in there with um, some red peppers from the garden and tomatoes, little cherry tomatoes. Um, so, so depending on what I'm working with, I will do a number of things. What I've been doing most lately is um, pressure canning. And um, I wasn't sure I would want to do that because... When I, when I got my canner and I read the manual three times, it's kind of ominous at first. You know, you've got all these little valves and this pressure gauge that's affixed to the top permanently and, you know, and these, like, screw-down latches. And, I mean, it, it, it looks kind of formidable, honestly. Right. Um, so, so this is... I just recently started doing pressure canning. So um, let's get into the water bath versus pressure canning. What, what determines uh, the method or, you know, what kind of produce you use for each and kind of your setup and just a, a very basic overview. Sure. Um, well, basically the acidity level of the food dictates what type of canning you need to do, whether you do water bath or um, pressure canning. High acid foods um, like tomatoes, apples, uh, pickles, um, they can be water bath canned. Um, now you can, you can take low acid foods such as asparagus and you can water bath can them if you pickle them because you're adding that acidity into the brine. You're adding, you're using at least a 5% acidity vinegar brine and it's a mixture of vinegar and water. It's usually more vinegar than water. Um, but basic rule of thumb, low acid foods or, or foods that measure less than 4.6 on the pH scale um, must be pressure canned. Now this is like, when you think about it, think about the, the foods that are high in sugar, uh, corn, carrots, uh, beans, or th things that um, have multiple types of ingredients in them like soups. Meats also are, are a low acid food. So if you want to can meat, you have to do it in a pressure canner. Um, but the, the, Pressure canning downside, especially for vegetables, for me, is I don't like them mushy. And because it takes so long, I mean, you know, a, a quart of potatoes, you have to pressure can it for 40 minutes. Well, think about your beans in a pot for 40 minutes under pressure. They, they're not as crunchy as they would be if you, say, pickle them. Now, if you don't like pickled foods, well, then you're just going to have to deal with mushy. I'm sorry. Right. Does that, or, does that help? Uh, yeah. So just to clarify, when you say a low acidity food, you're not talking about low as in the numerical value on the pH scale. You're talking about a more alkaline food, so something higher on the pH scale. Correct? No. Low acid foods would be high, al high alkaline. Right, right. Okay. Right, yeah. So low acid foods, pressure can, unless you're going to pickle them. 
Um, and then you need to follow a tried and true recipe for that. Um, your higher acid foods uh, can be water bath canned. And to put, put it in perspective, I just described, you know, it takes like, it can take 40 minutes or longer to pressure can something at, a, at the quart size. You can water bath can it in 10 minutes. Wow. That's a huge time difference. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I know um, it's not really talked about, and I haven't really experimented with it yet, but uh, when I was first starting to get into canning, it was just before COVID, and I didn't have, like, a lot of money um, to go out and buy a bunch of things, and I'm big on multi-purpose items to begin with. So I went out, and uh, everyone was talking about Instapots. It was like the big rage was the Instapot. You could cook frozen chicken in like 20 minutes. And it was, yeah, it was awesome. But I was looking into them and I was like, well, that's a pressure cooker. There's got to be an Instapot that does canning. And I did some research and there was like an Instapot Max, I want to say was the, was the model of it. And it actually has a canning feature. So that's what I went with, um, I can, I haven't used it for canning yet, but I can already tell you, um, I tried to kind of cut a corner and not buy a pressure canner, but the Instapot is just so small that when you add in the time it takes to pressure can something and the amount of vegetables that I would need to do, plus the lack of space, I would, it would be an all day event for me to pressure can yeah. with the Instapot. Um, so in hindsight, I wish I would have just not gotten an Instapot and had just got a pressure canner that was slightly larger. But, uh, you know, if you are tight on space or you want to go that route or you're not canning a lot, you could look into that as well. Um, but I, I just know personally, it's not going to cut it for me. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot of work just preparing everything. I mean, you imagine you've got. Well, I'll give you an example from this weekend. Um, Bob uh, dug up all the potatoes, um, all the smaller ones that we're not going to use for you know baking potatoes. Um, he had two boxes, uh, so I had twenty pounds of red potatoes and about fifteen pounds of white potatoes, and I mean. I had to break it up. It just, it took me two hours just to clean them, um, you know, and then that was just the red potatoes. And then um, I canned them in, uh, in quarts. So I got 14, I ended up with 14 quarts of red potatoes. Um, but by the time you, you know, you've done all that prep work and everything and, you know, you get them all in the jars and you make sure that your jars are sterilized and blah, 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 blah. You're spending you're spending a huge amount of time, and that's with I've got a 25 quart canner, so it's nice to to fill that thing up. Just do the one 40 minutes, you know, for the potatoes because that's what quarts need, um, and then pull them out, and I have done them all at one time, right? Yeah, over the weekend uh, when I was at the IKC event which was awesome. Uh, there was a canning presentation and Texas Joe did a demonstration of water can water bath canning. Uh, and I think he also did 
both pressure canning and vacuum canning, although I didn't get to see the other two. Um, but as far as the water bath process, it was interesting because he uh, had this little this uh, this little device, kind of like a pair of tongs, that he would hold the lids with to the jar, and he would just heat them up until that little red ring uh, got uh, kind of poofy, and hmm. uh, he said it helps sterilize them and uh, helps maintain that seal, but. The thing I took away is that he has what he calls canning parties where everyone from his local community picks a day and they all bring their canners and all their produce, everything they're canning. And it's like, hey, today we are water bath canning and everyone comes in and they set up like an assembly line. So one person is like sterilizing jars or, you know, one person is dipping lids to get them hot. The other person's actually filling the jars. One person's organizing them. And then at the end, they just split it up amongst everybody who came. Um, My Lord, that is a fantastic idea. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. So being a one man, yeah, yeah, being a one man show is hard. (laughs) Yeah, uh, community is so important. We talk about this all the time because it's so. I truly feel it is important. But you know, hypothetically, like if you and uh, Rob and I and a and Trigy and State of Appalachia all got together and were like, hey, we have you know two hundred pounds of potatoes. We're just all going to show up, can them, and then we'll each split it five or six ways. And uh, it's, it's a really, it's a fast method when you get that many people and that many canners going at the same time. Do they do it outside? I think they do. I think they have like a, uh, I could be wrong, but when he did it at the event, he was on a propane burner, which he said wasn't ideal. Um, but it would work. So I guess they do it. I I would, I would assume they do it outside, but they might do it in a kitchen. I don't know. Which, you know what, I guess, you know, what you might be able to do is even if you you can't do it outside is maybe check with a local fire department or a church that has a commercial kitchen that would allow you to use it. Because the problem is when you get too many people in the kitchen in a, in a, residential kitchen that you're working in, it can be dangerous. I mean, Bob is not allowed to come in the kitchen when I'm canning. He is not allowed in. (laughs) At all? Because I, I, no, he he has to walk around the island if he he needs to go to the microwave, but he's not allowed into the magic triangle. Wow. Laying the law down. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, just think about all the boiling water. I've got a pot on there with the lids on it. I'm, I'm Typically, I have a brine going or I have hot water on the stove plus the big-ass canning pot. And, you know, I turn around with a pot full of hot liquid and bump into him and scald him. I, I just don't even want to imagine that, you know? Hmm. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Yeah. I can tell you, though, I don't think your fire department's going to let you lose, use their kitchen. <laughs> oh, Okay. Not, not, not yeah. Maybe not the church or community one, center or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, or somebody who has an outdoors, outdoor kitchen. But yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. That would be great. 
If you're in yeah. an area where there's uh, like a volunteer fire department, I could see that being an option. But yeah, like a career department, probably not. Yeah, okay. especially I agree with that. Especially if you were like, "Hey, uh, we're just looking to use uh, a commercial stove, and we are curious if you would let us do it, or if someone is a volunteer member." I mean, that's pretty much a shoe in that you'll get to use it. But if not, you know, you could even pitch the idea of giving them some of your produce. Like, "Hey, we're canning a bunch of stuff. How would you guys like to have it for letting us use your your setup, your kitchen?" Yeah, um, that would or be, just offer I'd... to feed them. That's the quickest way to get any firefighter <laughs> to agree is just feed them. Um, so, trying to think what other uh, methods uh, you talked about dehydration, or I mean, you mentioned it uh, that you guys do that. Uh, what are you dehydrating? Uh, do you have like a dehydrator? You uh, mentioned sun drying. Like, what what is what's going on there? Yeah, we have, um, we actually have two dehydrators. Uh, one I got for Bob specifically for beef jerky. Um, he's actually doing that today. He started it this morning. Um, the other one is a, is a round kind of a tower with these like stackable trays. And uh, you can buy extra trays and, and they also you can buy inserts for smaller items like thyme leaves are really, really small. When you drive them, they'll fall through. Um, so basically, um, that's where actually where it started for us as a family was he grows a boatload of hot peppers. Every cayennes, um, habaneros, jalapenos, ghost peppers. Um, this year he even grew paprika uh, peppers and he would um, dry them and then grind them all up and mix them together. And then we would give that as gifts for Christmas. And, kind of got dubbed um, Bob's Terrace Hot Spice. It's so hot because <laughs> it's, it's not the, my, my sister had it in a little, one of those little containers like you would see at a pizza place and it had, friends came over and they're just dumping it on there and they're like, no, 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 that stuff's too hot. So, um, yeah, so it started with the peppers and, and then the herbs and this year I picked and dried my own um, chamomile and my my our own lavender that grows in our yard so I dried those and I'll use those in um, infused oils I also use them so the infused oils I'll use in my soaps and and stuff like that and lotions and same thing with the lavender so we haven't sun-dried anything I would love to try sun-dried tomatoes I love sun-dried tomatoes but I haven't tried that yet and this year's tomato crop was just abysmal. Uh, could you uh, do sunflower seeds? Yes. Actually, we didn't save them to eat. We did save sunflower seeds uh, to plant next year. Um, but, yes, you could as long as you get the right ones. There's, there's some sunflower seeds that humans just don't eat, and they're for the birds. And that's typically what we grow is for the birds. So um, he has done that before, though, in the past, uh, grown, you know, consumable sunflower seeds. Yeah, he definitely grows a wide variety. Like, I know I talked to him, not on the episode, I talked to him, though, uh, a couple years ago, he was growing tobacco. Yeah, he grew tobacco, uh, quite a bit of it. We had it 
drawing in what is now my studio and office, but we had it on hanging upside down on those portable roll around clothes racks. <laughs> <laughs> it smelled yeah. amazing. It did. I loved it. So um, he, he grew something new this year too, horseradish. Um, and I love horseradish, but he, he pulled the root up and I just processed that in my food processor and froze it. And, uh, I got, I don't know, I think two pints this year, just from, from on route. Yeah. He's definitely a, a very varied grower grows a lot of yeah. stuff that I would never imagine. I think it's also, he's not afraid to try, you know, I, one of my favorites says, you know, the garden is your classroom and it truly is. And so he's not afraid to try new things. He's never grown bok choy until this year. This is the first time or daikon radishes. The problem is if I tell him I like something, he kind of goes overboard. Um, <laughs> that's, how I ended, <laughs> that's how I ended up with so much asparagus. I have two beds, three by three by six beds. Oh, of wow. asparagus. Mm-hmm. So, um, would you like me to talk a lot, a little bit about the resources and the, the supplies and the steps in, in the, either the water bath or the pressure canning process? Yeah, that'd be great. As far as what, what's a good starting point, like what's the price point you're looking at getting into, or if people already have their stuff, some resources you may have found awesome. I, uh, and like super helpful. I know Rob has some stuff he wants to ask you too. Oh, okay. Well, you want to ask me now, Rob? Yeah, I was. I just had a. And during my research, I, I came across something called uh, freeze drying. I was wondering if either you'd ever heard of that or had actually done it. Um, I was looking into it. Apparently, it's it like saves a lot of the the taste and the health benefits, and it also stays. Uh, stays good for a, quite a bit longer than any other method. Um, but I, I just came across it and was wondering if you'd heard of it or had any experience with it. I have heard of it. Um, I do not have experience with it. And I actually, um, you know, I was looking for the best bang for my buck. Um, and to me, um, the canner, the pressure canner seemed like that it would be more versatile for the way that I prepare food. I have heard about it. I, I'd be interested to know um, what a comparable freeze dryer would cost versus a pressure canner. That would be interesting to look into, but no, I haven't done it myself. I think it's significantly more because from what I've seen, it's almost like a, a small, looks like a laundry dryer, except you're putting obviously like fruits and vegetables in it. Um, but they're like a couple thousand dollars it's it's definitely like something that you know is not for everybody it's it's definitely a unique way of doing it but i thought it was interesting and and what it claimed to like to to have food last up to like 25 years oh Um, wow those are some huge numbers like yeah that is huge as far as an economic entry level like to get into that, that's a massive uh, investment. But I'd never heard twenty-five years. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. 
Yeah, it, it talked. It had, I guess just overall, it talked about like how it you know holds the taste better, and and, and some of the like nutritional value. I guess is, is main more of that is maintained as opposed to some of the other methods. But I mean, it's it definitely looks like a very versatile option. I just don't know like how much you need, you have to be wanting to save because um, I'm a person that really likes to eat or you know give to. Like my like my family and friends more than, you know, if I'm if I'm preserving it, it's because I had just way too much and and wanted to store it for later. Um, but it's just interesting to look, to look into. Yeah, that's that's a significant amount of money. I mean, to to put that in perspective, think about what you say. It was over a thousand dollars or a couple yeah. thousand dollars. Just on, yeah. on one website, I found it was like two thousand dollars. I think. Yeah, that just so my twenty five quart. Pressure canner cost me four hundred dollars. So, you know, when you're when you're trying to save food, and well, you're growing your own food for the health benefits, but also to save, you know, money at the grocery store. What's the time frame to recoup that cost? Is it worth it? I don't know. Personally, for me, I would think not. My canner, that four hundred dollar canner, has already. I mean, our, our larder is full. It's full. So oh, wow. I'm very pleased with that investment. I, I, for personally, I don't think I could justify that cost. If you were going into business or maybe you were going to sell it, I could see that that might be a business expenditure that you might have up front and you could depreciate it. Um, but for personal use, I'm not sure the benefits are there. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's definitely like a unique circumstance where that would really be of value to you. Um, so like I said, like I, my main goal is to have uh, certain things in when, during times I can't grow it. That's really like the, my big thing. Yeah. Right. One way you might be able to justify that is going back to the canning party. If you have a community of, you know, eight people, that's 250 bucks a piece. And if you're mm-hmm. all going to use it and it, it can withstand that kind of withstand that kind of use, um, get eight people to go in on it and use it as once again, a community that, that could be uh, a viable option possibly. That's a great idea. And I think you could also apply that to the canner. I mean, to some people, $400 might seem like an awful lot of money. Um, and and it, it's not nothing to sneeze at, but I looked at it as an investment. But if you've got a community or you got you know, like-minded persons in your area who are growing things, you might go in on, on one together. You can get a bigger one than I've got um, to handle that, that uh, group capacity. But yeah, that's a great idea, Cody. So if, if you're getting into canning, um, what, what's the size you recommend? Is there a brand you recommend is, can you do water bath in a, the pressure canner without the lid like what are we looking at as a as a startup is it pretty much 400 bucks across the board no um i i really liked the all-american made in the usa brand they are a machined uh gasketless canner pressure canner with these um, lock locks nuts, they swing up and screw down into place. It makes me feel safer. The fact that I don't have to worry about the gasket getting gummed up and deteriorating and all of that. 
I just need to keep it clean and maintain it. And you use just a thin coat of olive oil on the uh, inside rim, uh, the machined rim of your of your crock pot. But they have I'm mean, not crock pot. Pressure canner. They have multiple sizes. I went with a larger one. I think the smallest one they have is a ten and a half quart, and that one's three hundred dollars. Um, if you're just getting started and you you have a small garden, you don't necessarily need one as as you know like at the twenty five quart or even as big as their largest, which is forty one and a half quarts. Um, but the idea that it was gasketless, um, it it's it's got the lock nuts. It's got a built-in pressure valve, a pressure gauge, and then the valve with the weight. Um, it made me savor because I'm be quite honest. I used it for water bath canning a lot, and I was scared to death to try pressure canning. Just the idea of you know you have these visions of the lids getting them popping off, or you know, and I. I just prayed every single time I started to do the pressure canning. I'm much more comfortable with it now, but I do watch it like a hawk. I won't walk off and leave it. Um, but I think if you're going to get started, first of all, get yourself some some canning books. Um, read, understand the process, understand the concepts and the materials that you need. So um, I have Three books. Um, I think I, I sent them the links to you, Cody, but the, the all-new Ball Book of Canning and Preserving by Oxmoor House is a good one. Um, canning and Preserving for Beginners um, by Rockbridge Press is good. And then this one I really liked is Can It and Ferment It by Stephanie Thoreau. So once you have the books, those, those recipes are tried and, and tested. So then you just need to start thinking about the supplies. Um, obviously, start with fresh quality food ingredients, but um, you'll need a water bath canner with a rack inside. Um, there there's needs to be at least a water, an inch of water over the jars that you're going to be in can, canning. You need the jars, the lids, and the rims. Um, I want to point out here, too, you cannot reuse lint, uh, the lids. The rims, yes. The lids, after you pressure can or water bath can and you use it, it goes into the recycle bin. You cannot reuse it. Um, and then you need these, they have these things called canning tongs, and they're like, like the big claw thing. And that's to get your jars in and out of the canner because they're very, very hot. Um, you can't touch them. And then measuring cups and a chopstick or a bubble, um, what's it, what do they call it, a bubble remover. Um, you'll need that kind of stuff. You know, pots and, and um, bowls and stuff that you have in your kitchen. Um, and does the canning kit typically come with a gauge too? Like uh, when I was at the event, Texas Joe had this little step gauge that uh, mm -hmm. essentially you put on the rim of the jar and it measures how far down the water is because I guess with uh, different items and different recipes and canning times, you want that water level at varying uh, heights. So, yeah, that's called they call it headspace. And, yeah, headspace. And, that's it. Yeah, it's called headspace, and absolutely. So, 
Um, for soft spreads such as jams, jellies, and syrups, it's recommended to have at least one quarter of an inch of headspace for that, and those are water bath canned. Um, for fruits, pickles, salsas, etc., you want a half an inch headspace. And for example, my potatoes, they needed one inch of headspace. Um, and those were pressure canned. So yeah, there's a little tool it usually comes with a, a funnel. There's, I've got a, a little funnel that I use that has on the bottom, um, it, the measurements. So you can see as you put in your liquid where you are. So that, that's helpful. And then the, the headspace tool is also used to get bubbles out of the air bubbles out of what you've put in your jars. Yeah, it's, uh, Definitely a, an undertaking, but sounds sounds totally doable for the average person. It is. It, it definitely is. Um, real quick, I wanted to ask you to to give an idea to people uh, that you know obviously can't see uh, your garden. How big is your garden, and what is your return? Um, I I guess like. What's the average area of your garden, and what what about how much are you getting in various vegetables? We ha I think he has about twenty to twenty two beds, and they're usually three feet by eight feet, six to eight feet, um, and uh, and it's obviously crops rotate throughout the year. I mean, we got. I don't know, almost a hundred pound of potatoes today at this year. And that was just two beds. Um, I get, I can't even tell you how much asparagus I get. I, I get a pound and a half every day for about 45 days. Um, pickles. One year he planted 15 plants. I almost killed him. Um, cause I was picking 32 <laughs> pickles a day. Oh my God. <laughs> I drove around the neighborhood begging people to take cucumbers from me. <laughs> um, I've been yeah. there not that much but I've been <laughs> it he, wasn't 32 he, but it was it was a lot he promised me that he would bury me in produce and he pretty much has so we had to get a second freezer we haven't talked about freezers yet but we have three freezers now and um, mainly that's one of them alone is for um, our we buy our we buy like a half or whatever beef. I think this year we bought a little over a half of a beef, and that's filled up um, one freezer. And then uh, we bought an upright freezer, which hands down is my new favorite. I can't stand digging around in the chest freezer. I make Bob do it, so yeah. he's got like a little map <laughs> and an inventory list on top. But, uh, yeah, I love the stand-up, stand-alone fall freezer. Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, I have a chest freezer. I have a stand-up freezer. The stand-up freezer is so much more convenient. I can open the door, look in, see exactly what I have. I have it organized by species of animal. Um, there is some frozen produce in there, uh, like strawberries and whatnot. But we... Uh, we have it broken down by species of animal and 
by the cut of the animal. So we can visually see what we're running low on and we try to run out of everything at the same time. So that way it's not like, Hey, we have 50 pounds of ground beef left, but we're at a steak. Let's get another half cow because then you just get overwhelmed with ground beef. So, uh, as far as the upright versus chest, if you can swing it. I think they're a little more expensive, but it's a smaller footprint. It's easier to manage. Uh, the upright freeze, freezer is the way to go by far. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, uh, the other thing I, I think we should talk about or mention is um, when you've got that much money into, let's say, half a beef and maybe you have raised your own chickens and you got five, ten chickens in there, um, that's a lot of investment and money you don't want to lose. So you definitely need some kind of either we here, we have a whole house backup generator. So if we lose power, um, our generator, we've got a, a big tank in the back. It runs off propane. We're good. If you don't have a whole house generator, you should at least have some kind of generator to keep it going so that you don't lose your investment and the hard work that you put into, uh, all the vegetables that you may have frozen. Yeah. Or the meat you may have bought or raised. Like I have so right. much money tied up in these chickens that I have. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, one started to act out yesterday. So now we have one less chicken. Um, but that being said, I have so much money wrapped up in those chickens and I rely on them that I, that is my next move. My wife and I have been talking about, we can't afford a whole house generator. And honestly, we don't need one. All we need is something that'll run the fridge and the two freezers more or less. And I can, I can make do without power on everything else, but definitely right. have a contingency plan. Cause there's thousands and thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours in the meat uh, that went in. So you've got to have a way to, to maintain that. Um, so I guess before we go, is there anything else you wanted to touch on or, uh, mention? Um, no, I think, I think you covered everything. I mean, it's the steps are of how to do the water bath and the pressure canning are in those books that I mentioned, um, which if you can put it in the show notes, that'd be helpful for them also, you know, the canner, but, um, I think just think about how you how how you like to utilize and um, use your food to determine the best way that you want to either extend its um, shelf life or preserve it. Yeah, I'll add that to the show notes. And uh, you good, Rob? Yep, I uh, think we uh, we covered the, the good stuff. So, well. Thanks for coming on, Dr. C. It's been a pleasure. And uh, maybe we'll have you on again if we get some more questions, and I'm sure we will. So thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. All right. Thank you. As always, guys, follow us on Instagram at Appalachian Agorist. And uh, until next time.
this cat off. Oh, we got a cat, Rob. I know. You got a cat? Yeah, we got a cat. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's going to be an indoor-outdoor cat. Hopefully more outdoor as he gets older. Uh, never thought I'd hear you say those words, but... I know. 